Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So much has been written about the relationship between Dante and Beatrice, the woman for whom he writes and dedicates the entire Divine Comedy. He really does describe her as an absolutely magical creature, otherworldly and able to guide him through anything. One of my favourite descriptions comes in Paradiso, when Beatrice asks the souls of the fixed stars to answer all of Dante's questions. In response to this, the joyful spirits transform themselves into comets and whirl around the sky, blazing in their brightness as a show of goodwill. I really love this moment because it shows just how much Dante believes in the power of Beatrice, imagining that she could command the souls and the comets of the sky. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I couldn't be more excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most groundbreaking, important and influential artists working in the world right now, the fantastic Lubaina Hamid. Known for working in painting, drawing, collage, printmaking, cutouts and installations, Hamid paints onto a variety of surfaces, from ceramic to wood, which produce objects with performative potential intended to be encountered in a space. A tireless champion of marginalised voices, Hamid has dedicated her 30-year-plus career to uncovering silent histories, with her work addressing her heritage and driven by two recurrent aspirations, to develop and sustain a conversation with an audience and to valorise, in her own words, the contribution black people have made to cultural life in Europe for the past several hundred years. Born in Zanzibar in 1954, Hamid moved to Britain with her mother when she was just four months old. She studied theatre design at Wimbledon College of Art and later went on to receive her MA in Cultural History from the Royal College of Art with her thesis titled Young Black Artists in Britain Today. 
In the 1980s, she became one of the leaders of Britain's black arts movement, curating the seminal group shows Five Black Women at the Africa Centre, Black Women Time at Battersea Arts Centre, both in 1983, and Thin Black Line at the ICA in 1985. She is also the director of Making Histories Visible, an interdisciplinary visual art research project based in the Centre for Contemporary Art at the University of Central Lancashire. Living and working in Preston, she is a CBE, a Royal Academy edition, the winner of the 2017 Turner Prize and a professor of contemporary art at the University of Central Lancashire. She is in the collection of the Tate, the V&A, Whitworth, Walker Art Gallery, plus many more, and has had solo exhibitions at the New Museum in New York, Tate St. Ives, Chisholm and it has just been announced that Lubaina will have a major solo exhibition at Tate Modern in November 2021. Lubaina Hemid, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, very well, thank you. That was very long. <laughs> <laughs> You've done so much. So firstly, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I can't okay. tell you what an honour it is to have you on the podcast. I've been lucky enough to witness many of your shows at Spike Island in Bristol, Modern Art Oxford, your gallery in London, Hollybush Gardens, and of course at Tate Britain. Your work continues to fascinate and amaze everyone I know. And what I love about it is the fact that you use so many different mediums, whether it's paintings, drawings, prints, installations, to communicate a message, bring people together and teach people about history. I'd just love to start off by asking you, why is it that you choose to work in such a myriad of mediums? In a sense, I think it started because I trained as a theatre designer. So when you're learning that craft, you're dealing with rooms, locations, people's intimate lives, and you're kind of trying to get across an atmosphere and their life, their experiences, whether it's ballet or whether it's an opera or whether it's simply a play. But, you know, you, you need to express it through the kind of furniture you're designing for the set or the clothes that you put them in. Certainly when I did in the 1970s, it was a very hard and strict kind of training, you know. And through that, I kind of understood, without knowing that I'd understood it, that you communicate with people through what they know. People who are curious and curious about the visual know what a plate is. They know what a piece of cloth is. They know what a chair is. So that bit of awkwardness that sometimes happens between someone trying to communicate with a painting and a painting trying to communicate with a viewer is that, oh, does the painting know more than I know? Does it hold some kind of trick? Do I have to be educated in a particular way? to understand what's happening. No, actually, you just have to do what you do when you're meeting somebody. You relax, you look at them, you try to find out what they know that you know, and then the conversation begins. So it's a way of making that initial introduction very relaxed because, and then something happens, you get closer to this bit of old wood, and then the conversation kind of begins. But so that initial bit being introduced one to the other in that British way, you know, by the Duchess of Devonshire, you know, I'm sorry, I can't speak to you until I've been introduced to you. We've put that out of the window to hell with that. We've gate crashed the mask ball and we're in there. So it's about that, skipping that introduction bit and its awkwardness. Yeah. But I mean, I just, I love the surface of things. I'm not a sculptor, even though I'm absolutely often painting on three-dimensional things. I'm a painter. I'm interested in surface and interested in pattern and what languages are woven through those. And so 
painting on top of a pattern that's already on a tureen or already on a jug is a very easy and obvious way for me to say several things. You know, here is this object, which we both recognize as a jug. Here is the pattern that's already on it. And then I'm painting something on top of that. So it gives you a clue that I'm saying, well, the pattern is important, the jug is important, but what I'm saying with my painting is weaving in and out of those things, in and out of the object, in and out of the pattern. And that means that maybe histories need some of that as well. I mean, I quite like painting on blank, plain, <laughs> canvas as well and you know and on the inside of drawers yeah. and it's quite unpredictable yeah. I was about to do this piece for Vils in Brussels it's a collaboration between me and Magda Stavarska Bevan and I was going to paint the painting on very thin strips of metal that go all around the room and the metal took so long to come and my assistant Matt Birchall and the curator were faffing about measurements and I kind of got bored with waiting for everybody, <laughs> the metal yeah. shop to open and all the rest yeah. of it. And Magda and I were talking about the sound element that she's making. And I said, you know, I'm just going to make this on the bits of the wood that I've got around in the studio. And there's a bit of old bed, maps, books, pieces of cloth. And now the blue pattern that goes all the way around the room is painted on these. And I felt I do want to communicate. And I think the painting was on metal or rather restrained. It was me trying to be just a bit too cool. And that <laughs> isn't really me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even though you use acrylic painting in particular, you know, you paint on a variety of surfaces. I've seen your work in a drawer, on a boat, mm. on a plate, on a bedsheet, essentially all these found objects that you were just yeah. talking about. I mean, do you think in, a, in part of a way you're setting out to alter an object's initial meaning as well? Yes, alter it, but also give a clue that these objects have their own energy without being too cosmic about it. If a plate's been used yeah, by yeah. dozens and dozens of people for the last even 50 years, it has a kind of trace of them. And that pattern, even though it might be something very mass-produced, it doesn't have to be some hand-painted posh plate, but something mass-produced still has a history and it has a political history, it has a design history, and it has a used history. And it's important for me to show that there are gaps in those histories and that my painting, even now, is about filling those gaps. So I don't suppose to change the meaning, but change the function, probably. So the, the drawer is no longer any use as a drawer, but it does remind you of all the drawers you've ever opened and where you bought something from a secondhand shop and you found bits from somebody else's life yeah. in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. The hair grips, the bits of old tissue, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yes. And how there's this thing, if you have an empty drawer, you, if you're well-trained like me, you put a very nice piece of paper in the bottom of it and then you fill it, you know, <laughs> yeah. with your shirts or your underwear or whatever. So it changes the function. But quite often I'm reminding people of what they already know, of course, of the different layers of, of meaning that a, that a drawer or a jug can have. I destroyed the function, I suppose, and, and keep the meaning. Yeah, totally. But I mean, so much of your work kind of embodies the traditions of art as well. But, you know, very much challenges the way we experience art in a traditional museum context. For example, it can be immersive rather than sort of passively hanging on the walls. When you are exhibiting, how are you wanting to kind of disrupt the gallery space? Well, it happened in a strange way, really. In the past, should we call it the 90s, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't get exhibitions in white-walled galleries. 
I got exhibitions and interventions, as I began to call them, in object museums. So the curators there were interested, obviously, number one, in their own buildings, number two, in their own collections, and how to disrupt the history of those collections. These are regional museums a lot of the time. They're not being able to buy new objects or stage very fancy exhibitions. So I would negotiate with these curators and make objects that sort of sat amongst the furniture of the museum. And that disrupted then how was a casual visitor to know what was real and what was not real, what was always there and what was there to disrupt what was always there. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that about objects, about what objects do, what they say, how audiences perambulate through an object museum or something that they think is history as opposed to something which they think is art. But they're always people who are curious. They want to know something they didn't know before they stepped in to the place. Then, really late on, so probably you're talking 2017, it's the first time I had a show in an art gallery. It was probably Spike Island and Modern Art Oxford and Nottingham Contemporary all at the same time. A lot of those objects that I was showing in there were things that were initially made for museums. And so then when I'm showing in an art gallery, I'm sort of recreating this work for a different space. So it doesn't have the same effect because I'm not surrounding it with Dalton plates. But when things are in art galleries, it's still not a passive place for me. Even if I'm making works on canvas for an art gallery setting, I still know that that work doesn't come alive until people are bringing their own lives to the room, bringing their own stories to my story and kind of exchanging heat and blood and sweat and tears with that work, even though it looks like a very passive thing, the way people perambulate around a white cube. Of course, inside our heads, we're having all sorts of conversations with the work, with ourselves, about the rest of our day, about what this reminds us of. But it just, the process of perambulating around the white cube looks very sedate and very Mm. middle class and very distant and very unemotional. But often the strange kind of memories we're building up or even that drifting that we do, you know, looking at a great work of art and thinking, I'm a bit hungry now. I hope this... (laughs) this gallery's got a decent cafe we've all done that we drift to that and think now I'm going to do the next room or how many shows we've been to where there's those chronological shows where you get to the last room where the artist has been helped to make these kind of daubs on their deathbed (laughs) by their assistant and you think you know I wish these galleries wouldn't put this final room in because you leave the show if you don't go backwards on it you leave the show with this kind of depressed sort of vision of an artist yes that's so true you know so all those things are then with you as you head towards the cafe and the cake you how they really sold out at the end of their lives or something (laughs) yes and all that kind of stuff goes on but you can't see audiences doing that yeah you don't clap or you don't cheer yes but it isn't as passive as it looks because you know that everybody who's interested in looking at art knows that their experience is very emotional and very personal Yeah, they essentially become like performers in a way. Yeah, they absolutely are performers. They're in the play 
uh, certainly with mine, they're either backstage or front stage of whatever play or performance I've set up, even with rectangular canvases. I look forward to your end room and Tate Modern then. <laughs> well, I've insisted we're not having little old lady daubs. We're not doing it. We're going to end that sh- Because now you know that you have to go through the show in a particular order. Well, that's not yeah. quite what I ever had in mind to dictate the way that an audience member would go through my shows. I want you to be able to go from room one to room seven if you want. The building and the display will try and dictate things and I will try and disrupt that. It's a whole other exciting way to think about a show, really. It's how to obey the rules and disobey the rules simultaneously <laughs> with social safe distancing. You know. Yes, yeah. that's true. Hopefully that we'll be rid of Corona by November 2021. But I'd love to go back to your beginning. So you were born in Zanzibar in 1954, but you grew up in England after coming to the country at four months old. I'd love to know a bit more about your childhood. Was art something that was always present in your life? Yes, always, because my mother was a textile designer. And so every single day she would go to work in the textile design studio. She'd leave the house every day at the same time and she'd come back at the same time. She was a nine to five textile designer, a sort of office worker, but painting all day and usually in the West End of London. And so even when I was, I think from the age of 18 months, I was in nursery school and we lived with my auntie as well at the time. And the three of us functioned in a very lovely trio. So it was in my life from the very, very beginning. I knew that from once I understood about work, I knew what my mother did. And she talked about it all the time. And she you know, brought lovely fabrics home and she dressed me in very pretty dresses for photographs, but not in the everyday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are great photographs of me smiling in a lovely dress on the lawn. And then I photo- love that photograph of you and your aunt. It's absolutely gorgeous. It was in Freeze magazine a few years ago. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Me and my aunt and my mother. Yes, absolutely. They made their own clothes because it was the 1950s. And that's what they did. But there are also photographs of me taken by my auntie, usually not by my mother, where I'm in a striped <laughs> T-shirt and corduroy trousers, which is what I wore all the time, every day. So there's my kind of performance photographs and my this is how I really am photographs. But my mother was carefully grooming my image, you know, to look like this pretty thing. If we were out, she would talk about what other women were wearing We'd go to department stores one weekend looking at clothes, looking at furniture, touching them, talking about them. And she encouraged me to feel the difference between silk and wool and chiffon and cotton. And that's the thing about department stores is you don't have to buy it, but you can touch everything and you can try everything on and sit on everything because there's a potential you might buy it. Whereas on other weekends, we would be going to art galleries, mostly Tate or V&A, where again, there were beautiful things to look at. But of course, then you couldn't touch them. But the experience was kind of the same, looking at things being beautifully lit and spaced out in a particular way that's about looking and enjoying and understanding. And so I was never afraid of those kind of places because the shop, the department store and the museum merged for me as just a place where lovely things were. But she wasn't a kind of teachery type person. You know, I don't think she ever taught me anything. <laughs> in that, anything, nothing useful, like how to bake a cake, how to put on makeup, none of that stuff that I could have done with knowing. But she didn't, she didn't feel she was teaching me there either. We were doing what she wanted to do. Yeah. But I think 
that's what you should do. You should do what you want to do and take your kids along because yeah. they don't even know they're learning and they don't know it's highbrow or expensive. You just take them along. You still get yeah. to do what you want to do on your day off and they just think it's normal rather than a, a lesson in whether Pizarro comes after Picasso. So, yeah, it was certainly talking about pattern and talking about paintings and talking about how things were beautifully made was really part of my childhood. We didn't own expensive things, but my mother knew what quality was, I suppose. It's such a beautiful article that you wrote in Freeze Magazine a few years ago when you say your walls were covered in huge paintings for the parties that your mother and your aunt would have for their theme parties and everything. Yeah. (laughs) They were incredible. I mean, they were incredible. Their parties were really outrageous. I mean, really, really outrageous. But yeah, they'd spend absolutely ages. My mother making the, yeah, making the paintings and hanging lovely lanterns with candles in, or jam jars with candles in, making lanterns with uh, coloured paper, coloured wow. uh, film, you know, and hang them in the trees. And of course, they'd invite the whole street so that no one could complain. And some people in the street came. <laughs> so smart, you know. A great tip. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we'd go and, and get the record player serviced and then roll up the carpets and there'd be copious amounts of alcohol <laughs> and tons and tons of men. I mean, yeah, they were wild. They, of course, you know, in their old age, conveniently forget this. They became very respectable women, but I knew their secrets. And do you remember visiting places like the Tate Gallery, Tate Millbank and the V&A and actually seeing specific artists who had an effect on you or did it just all kind of blur into one when you're young? Well, no, it didn't actually blur. I think there were absolutely particular things. In Tate at Millbank, I suppose around the mid-60s, I suppose I was maybe 10 or 11, I knew then I hated Giacometti, hated those... Oh my gosh. Spindly figures. <laughs> I haven't matured and you know, grown child. to love them. I just thought, ugh. And I loved the Bridget Rileys. I loved yes. the, I loved how they annoyed my mother <laughs> because she thought definitely thought she could do them. But I loved that way those early Bridget Rileys drew you in and sort of rejected you. And I sort of held it without knowing I'd understood it until much, much later, where I kind of realized that paint was actually making you, this stuff put very carefully, true, on a canvas, actually making you come closer and be repelled at one and the same time. If paint can do that, then what else can it do? It can do all kinds of things. And then understood much, much more about what I really understood about paintings. And then I loved these really fantastic paintings. She's incredibly vulgar and were always in the same bit of Tate Millbank, in the same rooms, which were underground. So they were where the sort of corridor is now between the restaurant and the cloak rooms and where the archive spaces are. Oh, yes, 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 yes. There used to be showing spaces and the pre-Raphaelites were often there. I don't think they moved things around at all, but what was definitely (laughs) there was the James Tissot paintings. And so they always were thought of, and still today, sort of vulgar sort of paintings. They were paintings of clerks and serving girls. So they weren't 
aristocrats perambulating through, they were very much, um, my cousin's taking the dog now. (laughs) (laughs) She's been very quiet, the dog under the table. Anyway, she's gone. (laughs) So they're very much paintings of everyday life, but not working every day of those precious moments of the day off. But there are many of those paintings where the women in the works are incredibly close together, either leaning on chairs, gazing out, a woman behind a fan, so that you know that one woman can see the other woman, but the man behind one woman can't see that woman. There's this beautiful kind of sexual innuendo going on, beautiful relationships, departures. And I understood that, but through the medium of their dresses really early on. I could see that there were conversations that Tiso was making between people which were to do with how he dressed them. But I didn't make sentences like that about it until I really started to paint. So there are absolutely particular things that I loved. In the V&A, I think it was always probably the furniture, English furniture, I think, those big four-poster beds, I guess probably my most favourite thing from my childhood from the V&A were probably those fronts of shops yeah. rescued from the Fire of London or whatever, the only remaining shop front from the 1700s. Not so much the jewels or the silver or chinoiserie or whatever that I might look at now. I think those shop fronts and big old bits of door, street things, I suppose. And then it's interesting to think that actually then you went to Wimbledon College of Art and uh, graduated with a BA in 1976. I mean, clearly theatre and props and just a kind of immersive atmosphere is so prevalent in your work. I mean, why did you choose to do theatre as a course as opposed to fine art? Because I was a political animal and I was absolutely convinced that theatre, because this was the 1970s, that theatre, political theatre, street theatre... European political theatre, you know, the Italians, the French, were making political statements, revolutionary statements about how important people's lives were. With theatre, fine art was simply not doing that in the 1970s in the art school that I was at. What I didn't realise about the theatre design course at Wimbledon is that it was very, very centred on opera and ballet, about which I knew nothing. But I found that I became absolutely besotted with opera. I think all these installations and exhibitions that I make and that I want to make are very much linked to my love of high drama, sumptuousness of a multi-layered performance where maybe five people can be singing at once, all of them singing different words about how they're feeling, but all of them being able to sing, as it were, the same song. I think that's how artists work. I mean, I, I think the thing about us is that without knowing it, we are doing five, six, 10, 15 things at once. And so we can know, for instance, how many greens there are in the room you just know mm, a lot of green in the room today <laughs> everyone's been to the same eyebrow hairdresser today, you know, all that kind of stuff is all going on as well as the sound of the central heating system yeah all those sorts of things are going on at the same time and what I got from that theatre course was a passion for performance and opera in particular 
and the bit I could I could do it badly now, but I mean I could make a table, I could run up some curtains, I could make a costume. Wow. That kind of way <laughs> of being able to do all those things. And understanding the world in terms of 17th century through what people were wearing. Yeah. I could look at a photograph and know what bit of the 1920s it was. Directors would come in to the art school and they would direct as if they were directing for the opera. So all of us would be their set designers. So we'd all be making different models. And I was very bad at that, even. <laughs> I <laughs> doubt it. And no, I was actually, I, thought, I was terrible at the theatre design course. But I learned a great deal. I just didn't learn how to be a theatre. I just learned all the fantastic amount of really useful things for being an artist and being a person. You know, it was terrific. But it was agony painful yeah horrible experience and at what point was it that you decided to dedicate your work to championing black voices and black visibility well as i said always been a very political person i was always on marches i was very interested yeah but i could only make things you know and i guess right at the beginning of the 1980s i was working in restaurants as a waitress and also I was living with a man who owned restaurants and he purchased a building in Covent Garden and wanted me you know you can do art uh, help me design this restaurant <laughs> well okay so I designed this <laughs> restaurant wow <laughs> called Tuttons so the tables the chairs the decor, the menus, everything about it. Wow. And of course, we, well, he didn't have that much money. And so we needed things for the wall. So I got my theatre design friends to have exhibitions there. And gradually, I made connections with the Africa Centre on the other side of Covent Garden, as well as with other galleries. And I got the feeling that many of these other galleries, apart from the Africa Centre, were saying that there wasn't such a thing as black artists. It was kind of Huh. A black person wow. making art, that's kind of odd and unusual. And that's not really what black people do. And I'm thinking, well, actually, I knew my mother had work on her walls made by African artists because yeah. she had bought little drawings and paintings from the Commonwealth Institute. So I knew that African people, black people made art. And then I decided that I was interested. OK, what, what are other black people in this country doing and sent out a typewritten little note to all over the country to community centers art schools that i could find you know in, in phone books that were no internet or anything like that then <laughs> <laughs> and said you know if you are a black artist and you're interested in identifying as a black artist you're interested in showing work send me your slides and your name and address yeah. and people like sonia boyce and Claudette Johnson and Veronica Ryan, all these women and some men too, sent me slides. And I thought, okay, well, I've got to do something with it. And this work was really strong and yep. very different from each other. You know, they were not making work, you know, Sonia Boyce's work to this very day is nothing like Veronica Ryan's work. Yep. And I could see that if these people existed and nobody had particularly asked them to show work before, then this was really interesting. There's a real conversation going. But at the same time, Eddie Chambers, Keith Piper, Donald Rodney, Marlene Smith and Claudette Johnson were doing something much more sort of actively political in the yeah. Midlands. And mm. we realised that lots of us, then um, Shaka Dedi in Tottenham was doing something else at the Black Art Gallery. 
we were all doing a similar sort of thing, making other people's work and our own work visible, but we were doing it independently. And then we began to have conversations and, of course, agreed and disagreed about the best way to do it, but still carried on because I don't think any of us ever tried to persuade anyone else that this was the best way of doing it. And that, in the end, was the strength of it. Yes, it was the weakness of it. We weren't presenting a united front, although we were politically very much in step with each other. Our visual art methods for doing it were completely different and we couldn't and wouldn't change any of that. I think it meant then that some of the intention of moving the debates forward were not as successful or as fast as we would have liked because we took our eye off the visual art ball, if you like, and concentrated on our political agendas. So in that meantime, the YBAs came along who were very much following the model, I think, of what we had done, but understood, because of their connections with Michael Craig Martin or whoever else, they understood collecting and the buying of art. We were using art to change things, not to earn a living. We valued the things we made, but not as commodities. And I don't think we even actively sat down and worked that out. It's just that a painting was about expressing something very, well, it was very difficult to express any other way. How do you express that experience of being in a slave ship? But those men like Eddie Chambers, Keith Piper, Donald Rodney were absolutely committed to getting everyone to understand, black people and white people, to understand the terror of being lynched, the horror of it, the history of it, and the comparisons in Europe with the horrors of America, you know. So I guess the work that I did at that time wasn't as politically out there, as radical as what they were doing. None of us could have done what we did without them leading the way, if you like. Then you had Black Audio Film Collective working at the same time, Sankofa working at the same time. So the whole lot of activity. It would be impossible to write the actual history of that time and those artists in one book. It would be like saying, let's write the history of French art in one book. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. really, there's so much went on. Lots of interlinking, lots of rivalry, but determination to shift things. And I think where we are now, where things seem to have shifted incredibly, is because of all this dogged plodding that we did over many, many years, you know, really laying the foundations and chipping away very slowly. And, and many of the strategies we had didn't work. But at least, I guess now, people know, let's not do it how... That's very much what my archive space has always been about, making histories visible. I want to show the project and show that it, in many ways, it failed. And so don't repeat the failure of this. Do it the way that feels right for you now, either your strategic plan or just your making. It's about seeing a history, but then seeing the value in how young artists want to do it today then we don't have to do it the same way we're not gods or special in that way I mean you can see it when you when you see films of us or photos of us when we were younger we were not 
I don't think we were that convinced about ourselves. We were convinced about the stuff we made, but I don't think we thought of ourselves as personalities at all. Yeah. But I mean, you watch that incredible documentary that's on BBC iPlayer at the moment about what is black art history yeah. with you and Sonia and everyone in it. And it's fantastic. And I mean, it, it's so interesting that you bring up this word failure because I've heard you sort of talk about it a couple of times. Mm. And I just think that, you know, my generation in particular are kind of in awe of the 80s black arts movement and the kind of conviction that you all had. And I don't think that you failed at all. I think people should know about that people know about that time and you know the fact that you curated these three incredible exhibitions five black women black women time now and also the thin black line at the ICA I mean these were seminal shows yes but you know what it's like when you're actually doing a thing it's to do with oh let's collect the work who's sending what where is it going to be placed in the room what will speak to what how do we get people to come? How do we get the people that we want to come to come? You know, people who we're related to, people who think, oh, art, what the hell's that? How do we get them to come and see that there's a sort of conversation that can be had through art that can't be had through other things? Those are the issues. I was never, ever thinking about, I never would have imagined. I had to get friends of mine called Marlo Russell drove, you know, round London, because she could drive and I couldn't, picking up the work from different artists in a hired van and took it to the ICA. You know, we weren't sitting in our studios, because we didn't have studios, waiting for the transport person to, to show up and put it in a crate and take it to the ICA. It was really was incredibly lo-fi. Didn't you never thought of it as some kind of great moment it was just we've got this thing now we now have to make it work somehow but I always knew that the work was incredibly strong I mean all three of those shows were amazingly powerful exhibitions but it's only many many years later that I understood how much effect they had had on the people that were in them and had come to see them I think what I mean by failure is we were young. I wasn't that young. I, I guess I was about 36, 35, 36, and lots of the artists were in their mid and late 20s. But to have had to wait this long before Sonia Boyce's at the Venice Biennale, it doesn't really yep. make sense, you know? <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, yeah. Was it just the fact that institutions just were not looking at all? I mean, well, looking, they knew those big, big time curators. And I can, you know, name many, many, many of them. <laughs> knew us personally, yeah. stood in the room with us, talked to us, said they were interested. But the minute they got positions that were really powerful, they wouldn't even look at us in the room. And many, many, many of them. And and that's what I meant by those the sort of, that's why, you know, when I when I won the Turner Prize, I wanted to say, I wanted to thank the people that, hung on in there, you know, Griselda Pollock and Jill Morgan, all of those art historians and curators and people that ran museums who gave us opportunities to show and to meet audiences. When those big time curators just held us, they just held us in our place and journalists, they knew who we were. And, you know, I could name half a dozen art journalists who knew who we were they just would not go there 
you know. And that's okay, but it was a cruel thing to do to such strong work that now they will acquire for their collections. They will write about it now. It's just cruel. And people, you know, like Donald Rodney and Maud Salter and Brenda Agard died in the meanwhile. And they were younger than me, all of them. And that is, you know, it's not like your granny dying in the meantime. These were young people, just exhausted, overstretched, poor, but brilliant. I mean, none of us could have made the work we made if Donald Rodney or, or Maud Salter had not existed, you know? I mean, they were a nuisance people, believe me, I could tell you stories, <laughs> but they were unspeakably brilliant. And they never quite got to see that other people understood how brilliant they were. They understood. They absolutely understood how good they were. And we understood, and they knew we understood. But there's only a limit to how much influence we could have, you know. I don't know. It's just the pity of it is what keeps me going. And knowing that these people who could have helped us didn't chose to choose someone else but that's hard for you I mean that's everything that's you know every in every industry people could say that I try not to be bitter (laughs) 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 to get it cross you know no no completely understandably and yeah I mean it's just it's 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 I can't imagine what you have gone through and I'm just so sorry and I just wish that other people were around at that time well we that's I mean I think that's the the marvelous thing about it when I first met the women from Hollybush Gardens, yeah, you know, who were that generation of women again, you know, but between the age of sort of 34 and 45. And men like Nick Aikens at Van Abbe Museum in Eindhoven, you know, Sam Thorne, that kind of generation like yourself, who were really interested in what was happening in the 80s and thought, just a minute, <laughs> and started to speak to us. I mean, you know, I think probably it was Ella Mills, who was from your sort of your generation at first. She's an art historian, one of Griselda Pollock's PhD students. In the middle of her PhD, started to talk to me about making and the people that I knew. And that was the first time that I had been asked by a much, much younger person about this time. And then all of you, you know, the Holly Bush Gardens, <laughs> all of you then were understanding how important it was and not caring that the generation before you didn't care. You know, that was the thing. I think that's the sort of, uh, that's the beauty of it, that you don't care that they thought we weren't important. Whereas I think they cared that the generation before them would not have, you know, that post-war generation of curators would not absolutely have touched us. And they cared about those old men. And so they didn't dare do it. Whereas this generation, you don't care if some journalist from the Guardian or the Times doesn't care about this. You don't care. You're doing your (laughs) Great Women Artists podcast that however many hundred thousand people are listening to, you don't care. And that's brilliant. And we love that, you know, because that's very much how we were. But somewhere in the middle was a sort of cautious set of people who just wanted to go with something that would sell for lots of money. 
Mm. Yeah, well, their their total loss. But, <laughs> but I mean, some of the work that you made here that was exhibited in these exhibitions were so seminal and are still placed in Pride of Place in Tate Britain, like Freedom and Change um, and Carrot Piece. I mean, can you tell us a bit about those works? Well, Freedom and Change is a really early work. I made it as a piece of theatre design. Do you know what I mean? Makeshift and mend and throw away piece. I made it in exactly the same way that I would have made a theatre set. I found a sheet that was around the house that was a strange colour. Who'd want to put that colour on your bed? And I spray- It is a funny pinky, isn't it? It's really weird. I, the woman I was living with at the time had this. I'm like, well, we're not sleeping on that. So either I'll have that. And I spray painted those women. And I used, You can still see the pencil. I drew on pencil on it, and then I spray-painted the women, and then I stuck a collage of wonderful black-and-white pieces of card that my mother had given me. She was at work at her textile design firm, and they were these lovely bits of black-and-white card, and she just gave them to me. She just said, oh, these would be useful. They're rather lovely. You know, she was that kind of woman. You're black pieces of black-and-white card. Who would know that their daughter would love that? And then the blue dress of the other woman is made from just yeah, bits of blue paper, airmail letters. You used to have that thing called airmail letters, you know, very light, <laughs> thin, translucent airmail letter paper. And I was really interested in Picasso's stealing of African yeah. imagery. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to steal this thing back. And so I took this image of a theatre curtain for a play called La Plage. So these two women are running along the beach in Picasso's painting. And you know, by the time they've got to the end of the beach, their clothes would have fallen off. I was having none of that. So these black women were, you know, clothed. Their clothes were not going to be falling off. They were together. One of them was that kind of determined somebody with a mission, somebody with a plan. And the other one was just one of those women that just wants to experience things and see how it goes. And so they were there running along the beach. And I have always called that painting Running Women. When people say, well, freedom and change, I think, oh, what the hell one's that? But I call it Running Women. <laughs> And, that's uh, on Tate website yeah. and so there, there's two men kind of buried up to their necks in sand were kind of descendants of a series of cut out men with four foot penises that I'd made previously to that piece so it was me very much trying to think okay putting white men at the center stage of what I'm making even if I'm doing a kind of caricature mocking is not really working for me it's funny it's a one-time joke <laughs> but now we need to actually go somewhere with this so these <laughs> two women represented my going from being very much a disciple of Cruikshank and the rest of those British caricaturists to being my own woman I suppose and having these vicious wooden cutout dogs of war pulling us along in a kind of answer to all that National Front men roaming the streets of London at that time with their big, nasty, vicious dogs. So I just took on much more a sort of active... I mean, I've always used my work to try to get myself to understand what the hell it is is going on. What is going on? What am I thinking? What do I want to do here? And so I make work and it kind of tells me that. But it... I use it as a sort of, so quite often I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and I don't know <laughs> what, what's happening in whatever relationship I'm in. And I, I'm making work to kind of understand that better. So that was also part of that. Um, but it was very much a work that was made 
one-off. You know, I, I didn't expect it to last. Everything is sort of botched together. That was how I knew how to make theatre sets. They were made, botched together, chucked in the back of a van, shown three nights, take it apart, make it into something else. And for some reason, I never did that with that. And I rolled it up. And I think before it was shown, you know, in these recent years, I'd shown it three times since 1984 or five because no one was interested in showing it. And a few times I thought about chucking it away because it was very long and I had it in a roll. It's the same with many pieces of work. They were kind of big. I just thought I really need to chuck this stuff and dragged it around, you know, for many years. But um, a very, very good friend of mine who's really uh, very ill now, but when she lived with me, I would order a skip and I'd be throwing away stuff that one should throw away. And I'd say, oh, Susan, as there's a piece called, it's in the Modern Art Oxford show and it's a big punch bowl and there are grapes coming off it and there's like a column and anyway, very unwieldy sort of piece. And the times I said to her, I've really got to throw this away. It doesn't work, this piece. No one would ever want it. I can't, it doesn't work properly. And she just said, do not throw it away. The times she oh said to gosh, me, don't throw this away. <laughs> Honestly, you have no idea. She got me to keep letters, catalogue. The whole basis of the Making Histories Visible archive is because she would not let me throw away that stuff. She'd say, somebody will be interested in it one day. And she's too ill now to know how successful and how brilliant her words were. She's no idea now. But because you just think, you know how much stuff one accumulates. And I'm very much a person. Have I worn this piece of clothing in the last two years? No, I haven't. It's time to throw it away. And I was kind of doing it with (laughs) this But when we're talking about preserving art history, I mean... (laughs) But I didn't know it was art history. I had no idea. I mean, the historians were really, really interested in it. And Griselda Pollock wrote about it a lot. But, yeah. you know, she couldn't buy everything I owned. <laughs> you know, what, what, people can write about it, but it was 40 years worth of stuff. Yeah. And the carrot piece, it was shown in Thin Black Lines in Tate, Britain in 2011, where I recreated a show of black women's work from the 1980s. The only piece of 1980s work in the Tate collection at the time was Veronica Ryan's piece. And all the rest of it we had to borrow from the Arts Council, from Bradford, from our own collections. And Carrot Piece sat in that show. But Tate didn't acquire it then. So it went back to the store. But I knew it was good, but so I knew not to throw it away. And, of course, it, it was part of the original Thin Black Lines and the ICA show. And it so epitomised, I suppose, me, really, that forever tempted by the carrot of showing in beautiful places, but knowing that I needed to be true to myself and true to what we were all trying to achieve and not slip into some kind of way of working that suited those institutions. The work still had to be, in a way, skipping those institutions out. It needed to be, how can I directly communicate with an audience here? Because these people in the middle with their carrots are just blocking it or stopping it or filtering it or distilling it in some way. So it was a very important piece to me because it could have ended up in the (laughs) book. 
<laughs> and now it's a pride of place of Tate Britain. Yeah. But Andrew, you're so known for your fantastic cutout works and paintings. But some work that I would love to see in real life was actually the work at your exhibition at Oriel Mostyn in Wales in 1999, which oh, included yeah. a series of kind of highly textured paintings about a series of journeys, which included effectively your first trip to Zanzibar other than being born there in 1997 first of all your website is the most incredible resource place ever because oh good because we, we struggle with it you know what I mean because I never so, want to if, look if at every it. artist took note and had a website like yours it would make us art historians life so oh, much well, easier that's good because it's yeah <laughs> the people who try and do it for me are, te- are really try hard and asking me all the time for stuff and I'm going yeah yeah, yeah I'll do it sometimes so no it's a fantastic good. resource So on your website, you know, you talk about how despite being born there for the first four months of your life, you had been painting the sound, the place and the memory of the island all along. I mean, can you tell us about this series of works and the experience of going back to Zanzibar in 1997? Yeah, I mean, it was very strange. I'd gone in 1997 and I, I didn't go for very long and I had been putting off going really since I could. Yeah. I could have gone many, many times when I, I either had the excuse that I didn't have the money or the political situation was too dangerous or... And I was always frightened to go. I was ashamed in a way that I'd never learned Swahili. You know, my father died when I was four months old. My English mother came back to England with me. And I'd often meet people from Zanzibar, people from East Africa in those intervening years, and they would say, oh, you don't speak Swahili. And I, I, would, I felt terrible about that, very embarrassed and ashamed. And so I had every kind of excuse not to go. But Maud Salter wanted to go, and she was a very bossy person, very strong in that way. <laughs> and I'm very weak, and weak-willed. <laughs> and, um, so she sort of arranged it, really. But I knew it was important. I just couldn't do it. And so we went, and it was an easy experience. It was the extraordinary thing about it. It wasn't sort of dangerous and mysterious. It was very everyday. I knew so much about it. I'd seen so many photographs. I tried to paint it, whether it was Venetian maps or it was going to Havana, all these kinds of things and places that I knew held a kind of... (laughs) Sidestepping the whole time. (laughs) Yes, all the time. So when I got there on this tiny plane from Dar es Salaam and arriving in Zanzibar, I got off the plane and I, and I thought, my God, yes, this is so familiar. It's like getting off the train, going from Preston to Manchester. It's just, I know wow. it. I understand yeah. it. People wow. there look like me. They look like a whole mixture of things. Nobody looked at me strangely. It was just unbelievably normal or, yeah. and ordinary wow. and <laughs> easy. And none of it was scary, nor was it a sort of great emotional thing. It was really was like going to Manchester. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know this, I know this, place, I understand this, I understand that. Yeah. It's cool, you know. And so it was a really great experience in that way. But then I got back to Britain. I mean, you know, Zanzibar to Preston. You know, when I first came at four months old, I went from Zanzibar to Blackpool. So, you know, I was used to that. <laughs> so I didn't make that work. I got this wonderful opportunity from Mike to be to make plan B at Tate's and Dives. I was working in the lifeguards hunt. And so I made this whole series of hundreds of paperworks and many, you know, big paintings, important paintings, I think. But at the same time, the guy at uh, Oriel Mostyn asked me to have an exhibition there. And I made the paintings for 
Zanzibar and the paintings for Plan B in the same studio at the same time. And I'm sitting in that studio now. It's the same house, the same studio. This The same room has been a bedroom and a living room since, but it's back being my studio now. <laughs> because it's the best. <laughs> and so I needed to go through the whole experience of making Plan B, which is as a student, a very young student, well, a very inexperienced student, not so young, but inexperienced foundation student, said to me when I was doing a slide talk about Plan B, he said to me, oh, I said, I've looked at this work. He said, I, um, I think it's all about you not being able to tell the difference between safety and danger. And you see when a year zero student, a pre-degree student tells you that about work that you've made maybe Mm, 10 years before it's like shocking and these are not art historians <laughs> these are artists you yes know? they can and, see through you yeah absolutely and so <laughs> I was clearly using plan b to come to terms with Zanzibar but then I made these paintings called Zanzibar for Wrexham and they I've never made paintings like them before or since because they're all yeah. made with extremely watery acrylic paint almost water and I dripped it and I turned the canvases back and forward and had all these tears really just dripping down every single one of them. And these very faint tumbling blocks. And on one, there's mosquitoes. My father died from malaria. So there are these mosquitoes, there are cloves, the little tiny details in some of them, and big kind of wet painting on wet in other paintings that's talking about the 40 days and 40 nights that my mother and I spent more or less alone after my father died. She was a widow of a Muslim man, so she had to isolate herself. And I somehow or other remembered these stories that she told me, and I, very few, but you know, some, and I still have the shells that she brought back with her. Wow. And I still have the rose water, silver rose water container that she brought back with her. And I brought all those things about her sorrow and my sorrow into those nine paintings. And then I'm like done with it. And I, I didn't really want to show it. The experience of showing it was good because the exhibition space is very beautiful. But again, between whenever it was I showed them, 1997, until really they were then shown in 2017. They really had hardly been out in those 10 years in between. So, But yeah, they're, they're a difficult work because they're sort of unique in a kind of weird way. Why did you use abstraction and, and pattern and texture to convey such an emotional time? Well, I think how else would I do it? I could have no other way of doing it. Pattern is a way of speaking for me. There are secret languages in there. There are whole novels, practically, in my patterned work that only the people that know what I was doing at that time or knew me at that time know what I'm saying in that work. And I didn't know how else to say it. Each of those double canvases is the same size as one half of a kanga, this cloth that you wrap around yourself, and just an everyday cloth. And so the whole series is about also the language of pattern and my actual understanding at the front of my brain about my conversations with my mother, the little that she could tell me, she could bring herself to tell me, and that you can say things 
because it isn't really abstract. It's elevating pattern to its rightful place as, as a language. You're not supposed to look at that work and think about nothing. I'm trying to get people to kind of clutch at familiar things. It's what I'm always doing, trying to make a bridge between me and whoever's looking at it. Mm, there's a clove. Oh, that's a pattern. I understand that. I can get near it. Oh, this paint is sort of gripping. You know, perhaps this is like tears or, you know, the sea, that tumbling block pattern that I use less now, but then quite a lot to try to paint how one paints the sea if you've never seen a painting of the sea. So if you've never seen the sea, as many people who got taken on the sea from Africa to America had never seen the sea, but certainly many people had never seen how you paint the sea. You know, we in Britain absolutely know because the history of British painting is the history of painting the sea. Yeah. This island, it's the glory of it, the beauty of it, the history of it is all tied up with its being surrounded by sea. So you know that, you know how to paint sea, but how to imagine sea as if you've never seen a painting and you've never seen a sea were these tumbling blocks, the illusion of it, the glinting of it, the depth of it, the choppiness many of those things I've then developed since. It's like all the series of paintings I do it. I learn something or other, even if it's don't do it like that again, because it ain't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's how those came about. I had to paint the whole of Plan B and have it shown at Takes and Dives in order to understand really what that experience of being in Zanzibar. Yeah. And then five years later, you created Naming the Money, which I've been lucky to see at Spike Island. But also Naming the Money is such an interesting Installation, it, it can be a hundred figures all collectively, but it's also brilliantly being curated to really bring our attention to the colonial history of British museums, such as the Walker Art Gallery mm. or the VA, and actually being placed around. I mean, can you tell us about this work and how it came about? Well, I was with this the same woman who always told me never to throw anything away, Susan. Susan Walsh. <laughs> Susan, yep. thank you very much, Susan. <laughs> For saving art history. <laughs> yeah, we, we lived in the north of England, and then, but we were in London. And we were at a show at White Cube. And I won't say what show it was, because I, I thought, oh, this is rubbish. And I left. The, <laughs> and it was a big opening. But it was somehow, it seemed to be during the day, I don't know, it was light anyway. And we came out. Yeah. And I met another of these curators who drive me crazy. And she said, oh, we must, we must do lunch. We must have lunch sometime. <laughs> Next time we're in London, we must have lunch. And I was livid, and I was livid for all those reasons. And I walked down Old Street towards Old Street Station. And I said to Susan, do you know something? I, I just had this most incredible idea. I'm going to make an installation that is 100 cardboard cutouts of slave servants. And it had come from a conversation I was having at the Hatton Gallery, and I was absolutely convinced that what I was going to make for that were 10 paintings on canvas that reminded me of some paintings that I'd seen in a museum in La Rochelle many, many, many years before of paintings of people who were the presents from the King of Spain to the King of France. And they were black slave servants. And they had sashes. And the sashes said, you know, my name is Jean-Paul and I play the lute. They, but it said yeah. it in Spanish or French. So 
for that show, I was going to make these 10 paintings. So I had that in my mind. And on Old Street, I said, you know, forget that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make 100 cardboard cutouts of slave servants. And she, you know, thank God for her again, said, oh, you don't want to be making them in cardboard. They'll just fall apart over the years. You need to make them out of wood. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. (laughs) Thank you, Susan, again. So I set about with the help of lots and lots of other artists that I knew at the time. I designed the templates of 10 different jobs, I suppose, a herbalist, the oligamba player, drummer, dancers, dog trainers, map makers. So I made the designs. Somebody made the templates for me, cut out these 100 figures, so there were 10 of each. And in this same house that I made Plan B, that I made the Rodeur <laughs> paintings, I painted and made the 100 cutouts. So they were all over this house, except in our bedroom. They were banned from the bedroom, but everywhere else. And <laughs> It took about a year and a half to paint each one of them differently from the other and to invent the texts and to find the names. And then all this kind of, I managed to somehow get all this together and then the help of somebody else to make the stands and then somebody else to help me make the soundtrack. And then we showed it at the Hatton Gallery which is rather, it's a really very beautiful space, but it's attached to the art school there. So every day, art students were looking at it, people who were interested in the collections. It was all about look at, see what's in our collection and respond to that. And of course, I'd I'd looked in the collection and I couldn't find anything that that gelled with me. So I was clutching at these lower shell things. But I also found these big, crates very high up on a shelf there were 26 of them and inside were fragments of all kinds of embroidery from all over the world fragments of of jackets of shirts fragments of trousers and she didn't know who had given them to the collection or what they were and I said oh well I want to use these because I'm interested in the idea of lost fragments I'm interested in the idea of histories that have are lost, have disappeared, and I want to make an analogy between these, what I thought were 10 paintings, and this stuff you've got in your collection. So she then had to spend an awful lot of time trying to find out what these pieces were, and then the education people at the Hatton then teamed up with some refugee groups who were very interested in embroidery. We showed the embroideries, and these people developed a whole project around North African making of embroidered cloths and this work. And so by some kind of astonishing set of miracles, that whole project came into being. And it had so many layers and strands because I was working with a curator who said yes, but she was not a curator of a fancy art gallery with collectors. It was a university gallery. And that's the thing, you know, all the way along, those are the people, usually women, that have taken a risk and taken the time to fill in endless grant forms to try and get the money for a catalogue. So, I mean, I think it has the power it has because of the complicated history of its making and that many people helped me make it. And I, I prefer it when it's a, 
all 100 people together. That's what it was about. It's about audiences going in and out of the room, reading the texts on the back, hearing the music and me speaking the texts on the soundtrack. When it's in the museum, you know, it was in the V&A 2007, when Zoe Whitley curated it there in Uncomfortable Truths. And then at the Walker, I do like that highlighting and gap filling. But of course, then those figures become what they originally were. They become slave servants to a sort of wealthy, white, European court. What I'd really done in making Naming the Money was take all those people out of all those paintings, all those Hogarth paintings, and put them in a room together. So when they are intermingled with the museum and and the objects, in a way, it's a sort of step backwards. I can absolutely see the point of it, and it works. People enjoy it and get it, but that's not really what it's supposed to be doing. I wanted to create a world that was our world, not our world in relation to a world of privilege. And how do you want the audience to feel when they're in that room in Spike Island with those 100 figures? Well, I suppose I really want people to reflect on the fact that whatever happens, there is always hope. There is always hope that things can get better and that you can find yourself no matter what happens to you. No matter if your identity is taken away from you, you're taken away from where you belong and taken to somewhere where you don't belong. You can make a a life for yourself. You can triumph really not in a kind of heroic way but you can and and I often liken it to young women who perhaps wanted to be something whether it's an accountant or a dancer and somehow their lives are slightly derailed derailed but intentionally you know they have children and they find themselves being called mummy and they lose the idea identity of who they really are and they're known in relation to their partners or in relation to their children yeah they've sort of forgotten that but there is still something that is very essentially them within inside themselves and the secret of it is to kind of find find that again you you don't need to abandon anything but you find what's essentially drives you and always drove you and use that to fuel the going forward rather than being lost or lost in that non-identity of your only purpose in life is to drive somebody to violin lesson or get them to a football match, you know? So I want people to relate on all those levels that one remains bizarrely, even in the depths of trauma, there is a small kernel that is still you and the secret is to hang on to it and try to nurture it, really. So I think that's what it's so totally about the possibility of things. And the work that you are currently making and have been making for the last few years, such as the Radeur Exchange painting. This work, I mean, it was on view at Modern Art Oxford when you won the Turner Prize in 2017. And it relates to the history of the slave ship Radeur, which set sail for Guadalupe from the Bight of Biafra in 1819, carrying 22 men and 162 slaves. And during this voyage, everyone on board lost their sight. The captain threw... 36 afflicted slaves into the water, hoping for insurance compensation, but this did not prevent the spread of this mysterious disease. I mean, when you're making a work like this painful painting, how does it feel for you? Well, I try to put myself in that place. 
Okay, so I put myself in that place. How terrifying is being on the sea? Quite terrifying. Being trapped in this wooden thing. I'm not sure if I know it's a boat. Remember, so I'm trapped in this place. That's also very frightening. And then I'm going blind. Now, for an artist, for an art historian, and for an art audience, there is nothing, nothing more frightening than being blind, because everything you hold dear is lost, and you have to somehow, if you were sighted and then blind, you have at least that. You can try to recall everything you've ever seen, but you're losing your understanding of how to understand the world. So. I kind of put myself in that place and feel the fear very much. You know that fear and danger, what's safe and what's dangerous, still is running, running, running through all this stuff. But how to paint that? How to express the absolute inhumanity and disgrace and disgustingness of doing that to another set of people? It's kind of impossible. I can't paint a painting with lots of naked black people stumbling around in the bowel of a ship. Who can relate to that? People of African descent can't relate to that. It's repelling. We don't want to see that. We want to know that there are some answers. So all those Rodeur paintings depict people who understand that story, who once were. Related to people who once were in that story, that truth, that narrative, they're trying to make head nor tail of it. The Rodin paintings are about not knowing whether you're here, whether the people you're with are from now or from then, not knowing whether you are seeing what you think you're seeing, what you are seeing that's real or not. There's miscommunication going on there. There's Trying to remember stuff is going on in those paintings. Trying to see things, not understanding whether something is a vision or is real, in every single one of them, and and trying to understand and remember what love is. Yeah, because slaves are dis- depicted as like slaves. Their central identity is that they're slaves. No, 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 no. They had names. They had mothers. They had fathers. They had brothers. They had sisters. They had people they felt for in some way. They had skills, even if what their skills were were not as sophisticated as some other people's skills. They had skills. They were human beings, and human beings are all about relationships and loss. And so, I'm trying to say that with those paintings, and. And I know because I've lived a long while now, but I know that much of life is about that. Of course, it's not as extreme as that. Those terrible, terrible experiences. But you still spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is going on, and how can I get out of this, or how can I get into this, or how can I remember this, or how can I work out what to do next? And so I made those paintings like that, so that again, a bit like. The way that I make patterns, so that you get nearer the painting, because you think, "Yes, I can't recognise this. What the hell going on?" Ness about this, because it's the same as every audience member's everyday life. And then, hopefully, some people will just remember it for the lovely pink dress, or some people will remember it for the pattern, and some people will look it up online and think, "What happened there?" You know what is this business about? 
of the insurance on somebody's life, you know, and what is a life worth in monetary terms and and what is this stealing people from one place and taking to another place? And then what is this America that doesn't actually seem to be too far removed from that? So, yeah, it's all about helping people who want to make some connection as well and fill in some gaps in their history of the world. What do you hope that we learn right now and the future generations learn from your work looking back over the last 40 years? Well, the, I think I, w- I really would like people to learn that they have agency, that each one of us can make a tiny, tiny bit of difference. It doesn't have to be these big sort of showy gestures, but really tiny bits of a difference to the people around you, sometimes to somebody you don't know, but that that is absolutely the way that change happens. So I think you, I want people to come out of the displays of my work and have experienced something that showed them that a, that a small thing can make a difference. Step out in blinking into the sunlight and think, oh, I know, I'm going to ring that person that I haven't rung for three weeks, or I'm going to write that email to someone, or I'm going to sing that song. Just some small thing that actually makes some difference that's what it's about yeah well Lubela thank you so much for this just phenomenal I have a thousand more questions so maybe we'll have to do a follow-up when you have your incredible Tate Modern exhibition but I can't thank you enough for all the work that you've done and just for really trailblazing art history as well but as this is the Great Women Artists podcast we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist now or from history dead or alive who you'd most like to meet what who would it be and what would you say to them well oh well (laughs) yeah that that is always a really really difficult question because I have met Betty Saar and I've said yes (laughs) this work is incredible I'm really glad you made this work because I do not know what I would have done if you hadn't made that work and I hadn't understood it. You know, there are artists that I work with, like Magda Stavasta Bevan, that change the way I think about listening and the way I think about sound and the way I think about language. And there are artists, I suppose, then there's Bridget Riley, who I have never met. And I guess to her, I would just say thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Levena, for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much indeed for having me. It's been great. Thank you all so much for listening to the 33rd episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the absolutely phenomenal Lubaina Hamid. I am genuinely in awe at everything she said in this episode and I'm ridiculously excited for her historical exhibition at Tate Modern in November 2021. I just know it is going to be incredible. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review and subscribe as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.